All right, good evening. Uh, I, I decided not to go with the microphone. I hope that was the right move, um, but it can get a little wonky on me, so I didn't want to be distracting. So if I am speaking too softly, uh, it's okay to let me know. I won't be offended, and I'll try to speak up so that everyone can hear. Um, but with that, I'd like to welcome uh, everyone online. Uh, for those of you, oh, you didn't hear Scott because we didn't go live yet. So I'm Scotty Brown, um, member here at Beer Bible Fellowship, and uh, am so uh, blessed and excited to be able to teach tonight. Um, and we're continuing in our study of 1 Kings. We'll be in chapter 18 tonight. So before we begin, I'd just like to pray for our time real quick if we can. So if you could bow your heads. Father, uh, we just thank you so much for who you are, Lord. We thank you for uh, just the ability to have fellowship, Lord, and also uh, that you gave us your word that we could study and that we could learn from, Lord, and also uh, just how you uh, tailored your word to affect each of us individually, Lord, but also it's just a universal word that we can all learn from. I pray that tonight that um, the Holy Spirit will move and that everyone who is listening will hear your words, Lord, and that uh, any of my opinions and uh, any of my thoughts will get out of the way as much as possible. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so as I said, we'll, we're in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, so if you'd like to turn there, that's where we'll be for the majority of the night. Um, there'll be a few references that I have. Um, you don't have to turn to those, but I will make sure to repeat them so that you can write them down if you would like to take notes. And I will get to my notes here real quick. You know, one of the more exciting things about having the opportunity to teach is that it really uh, focuses your Bible study or refocuses your Bible study. If you know that you're going to have to uh, learn it and then teach it, you really want to make sure that you're teaching the right thing. Um, so when Pastor Greg gave me the opportunity and asked me if I would be willing to do so, I was excited, but then also immediately dove into chapter 18 of 1 Kings. And so part of that preparation, just for myself, just to look behind the curtain for you guys, is that I'll read it uh, several times. I'll also listen to it, just an audio version of just the words being read. And then I'll go to different areas to try to see, uh, you know, former people who have taught on it and, and get their lessons from it. And a unique thing about this passage that I discovered is that uh, I found a lot of times in my study that I that there was a lot of people that I feel like missed the mark on this chapter. Um, and it being, you know, Elijah's on the scene now. This is a really dramatic chapter. This is one of those that you could see a movie, uh, you know, the scene being played out in, in a movie about this chapter. And so I, I feel like there's a lot of excitement, but also a lot of things can get lost in that excitement and the real lesson can get lost in there. And so before we get into it, I would like to just uh, lay a little bit of foundation. You know, we've talked about recently in the book of Acts how the Bible um, is a historical document. The Bible is a living, breathing document, a living, breathing word. And so it's something that we'll be able to study uh, throughout history and, and generations beyond us will be able to study and take things from it. But also, we need to remember that the Bible is a historical document and so that it chron it's a, a, a chronological view of 
of accurate history events. The things that happened in the Bible really did happen. And so that is the purpose at certain parts of the Bible is to record these things happening. And so we have to take the Bible and what we're reading in it and put it in its proper context. As an example, we all know the story of Moses, right? And the Ten Commandments, and we can, we can kind of recite it all the way through, and we know that story. Well, those things really did happen, and we believe that they really did happen. The burning bush happened, the plagues happened, the Red Sea parted, right? But we don't need to look at those events and try to recreate those things for ourselves, if that makes any sense. We don't need to look at Moses parted the Red Sea, and then we need to go find a Red Sea to part, or we need to find some type of metaphorical Red Sea to part in our life. Right? So that's a historical event that happened, and the Bible is recording that historical event. Now we can take lessons from that, and it's important that we learn those things, and the Bible teaches us that all scriptures God breathed, there's a purpose for it. But we're not going to take the events of Moses and apply those things as the same way that we would the Sermon on the Mount. So that being said, when we look at these events in 1 Kings, there'll be some things in here that are exciting and wonderful, but also we need to put them in their proper context. So before we get into our text, I'd like to discuss... Uh, the topic of prayer. Now, prayer is a, a, a topic that's worthy of discussion, and it provides an important foundation for our text. So I'd like to give you three examples of prayer from the Bible. The first example is from 1 Thess Thessalonians chapter 5, 17 and 18. That's 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 and 18. God bless you. And so it says, beginning in chapter 17, or uh, verse 17, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Matthew 6, 9 and 10, this Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10, this is the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the final example is from Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. That's Philippians 4, 6. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So if you attend church long enough, you will hear these three verses often. And there are many verses in the Bible that talk about prayer, but I pick these verses specifically because they are all commands. They are all commands to pray. But what you probably don't know is that without closely examining the language, is that these verses, the first verse, 1 Thessalonians, is different from the last two. That word for pray is a different word in the Greek. In Matthew 6 and Philippians 4, the, the latter two, the word for pray is the Greek word ukme. That's E-U-C-H-O, 
A or M A I. That's E U C H O M A I. Ukme. Ukme means to wish or to express desire for something specific. In the Greek language, it speaks specifically of a plea for, from a weaker person to a stronger person. The first, uh, the first example, First, Thess- first Thessalonians. I'll get that right one of these times. The, when it says pray without ceasing, that word prayer, pray, is prosehe. That's uh, P-R-O-S-E-U-C-H-E, which, is, which essentially means to pray or to worship. So when it says to pray without ceasing, it's not literally saying continually all day, close your eyes and fold up your hands and get on your knees and pray. It's commanding you to stay in an attitude of prayer and worship throughout your life. So now you might ask why the lesson on Greek and on prayer? Well, one, it's important that we study the original text. Um, It's important that we know those things, but also uh, from an apologetic standpoint in defending your faith, a lot of times um, people will come up with, oh, well, you know, the Bible has been translated so many times over, you're not even getting the original language. You know, you might have heard that at times. So it's good to know the original language, to have that in your back pocket, but also it gives you the right context for when you're studying the Bible, when you go that much further. Uh, Secondly, it's important to study these things because of the danger of misinterpreting that text, which is uh, of great importance that we get these things right. So who has heard the phrase or the, the verse, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much? That's a popular one that we can hear uh, if we attend church long enough. That comes from James 5, 16. And I read out the ESV, so the ESV version of that says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. So if you continue in James 5, the very next verse, in verse 17, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So the danger here is in reading these verses out of James and then reading tonight's text and gathering from that, that the lesson here is that if we pray hard enough, or if we pray the right way, that God's going to answer our prayers. It's easy to take that out of the verses that we've discussed here. And I don't mean danger in some silly way of like a televangelist telling you, oh, if you pray for a mansion, you're going to get a mansion, or if you pray for a boat, you're going to get that boat. I mean the danger in the way of if you pray to be successful at business, you'll be successful at business. If you pray for your loved ones to come to Christ and salvation, then they will if you pray hard enough. Or if you pray for healing hard enough, or if you pray the right way, you will be healed. Because the flip side of that coin is if you didn't pray hard enough, 
or you didn't pray the right thing the right way, those things didn't happen, and so somehow you did something wrong. You see, in James 5, the word prayer is that ukme word, is the type of prayer that Christ spoke of in the Lord's Prayer. What I want to point out to you is that in all of these passages, whether it's the Bible talking about ukme or prosihe, it is commanding us that we would fall in line with the will of God. That is what these commands are for. In First, that first Thessalonians 5, 17 and 18, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Matthew 6, 9 and 10, the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. James 5, 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and it is working as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person. Well, what is our righteousness? Nothing without Christ. So it is calling us to fall in line with God's will for our life. The power of per fervent prayer is not in the words or in the man who prays it. The power is in the God who hears it. And so I tell you that prayer is important. Prayer is commanded in the Bible. And our prayers are heard by God. But do not take away from the story that Elijah had some type of superpower. The power in this story is in the God who directed him by his will. And so in that, laying that foundation, now let's get into our text in chapter 18, 1 Kings chapter 18. It says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. So once again, Elijah is acting on the will of God. We learn in chapter 17 that he prayed by God's will for there not to be rain, and the rain ceased, and then God took him away for his protection. He did not return until it was God's will for him to return. Back to verse 3. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. So at this time, the famine is severe because of Ahab's disobedience. 
And that's what was brought about in chapter 17. So Ahab is scrambling for survival at this point, And he tells Obadiah, hey, you go look this way. I'm going to go this, look this way. And hopefully we can start to save and, uh, you know, gather ourselves and save some resources that we have. Most importantly, the animals. So it's interesting how, to me, in reading this, how God always provides his representative to his people. No matter how heinous the king or queen that's in Israel at the time, God is always constantly reaching out to his people. He's always giving that outlet. We see it with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. We see it with Samuel to King Saul. And now we see it, Obadiah has come in place of Elijah. When Elijah left, God provided Obadiah to come into his place to be his representative to the people. He never leaves his people in a place without him. Verse 7, And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, this is speaking of Obadiah, he said, How have I sinned that you would give me your servant, that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent me to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or the nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although your servant have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. So there's a lot to unpack there, but basically what's happening is Elijah is being obedient to God's will. He's on his way. He comes across Obadiah. Obadiah stops and is surprised to see Elijah because that's not what he was looking for. But over the three years that Elijah has been gone, he has been searching for him all over the place. So he's going from kingdom to kingdom looking for Elijah. And when they say he's not here, he gets an oath from that kingdom that he's not there and brings that news back to Ahab. Ahab is fervently searching for Elijah because he blames him for the famine that's going on right now. And so Obadiah is saying, I'm not going to go and tell Ahab that I found you because as soon as I go and tell him that I found you, the Lord might bring me someplace else and then it's going to be my head. And so Elijah makes this commitment to Obadiah I will be here. My purpose is to meet Ahab, so go and tell him like I told you to. 
I think it's interesting to observe the contrast between Obadiah and Elijah. They're both men of God, and it's easy to look at it as Elijah is brave and Obadiah is weak. But honestly, you have to look at the experiences of these two men. Elijah is now years into a daily, complete reliance on God. We learned that in chapter 17. The ravens were coming and feeding him, and then he was led to the widow. But he's completely relying upon God on a daily basis. And now he has been given a direct order to go and see Ahab. So you know that Elijah is focused. That's why he's direct and to the point when speaking with Obadiah. He doesn't show any fear or any type of wavering in what he has to do. And even if Elijah was a great man of courage, we have to recognize that part of his boldness is the direct result of his faith in God's will for his life. It's the experiences that he's been brought through. He knows that no matter what the outcome is, even to death, God's purpose is what's most important for his life. On the flip side of that, it's easy to oversimplify things by saying Obadiah is weak. You have to recognize that Obadiah has spent the last three years under the most heinous king and queen in Israel's history. And he has maintained his commitment to God through all of that even to the point of risking his life of saving these prophets. So some of us might choose Elijah's isolation over Obadiah's daily threat of death. Some of us would rather be in a place where we're completely alone, but at least we know we're safe and God's providing for us than having to wake up every day in a constant minute-by-minute reality that you might get your head lopped off. I think Charles Spurgeon had an interesting uh, point on the relationship between Obadiah and Elijah. He said, Elijah has an interview with Obadiah and bids him to go and say, Ahab, behold, Elijah. It may sometimes be the nearest way to our object to go a, a little around about. But it is remarkable that Obadiah should thus be made useful to a man who is so much his superior. So what Spurgeon is saying is that Obadiah is a necessity for Elijah. We might think of, oh, he's superior to him, but God has brought this lesser into his path that he has to use him. He who never feared the face of king, kings nevertheless found himself using his helper, a far more timid individual. The Lord may put you, my dear brother, who are so eminent, so useful, so brave, for perhaps so severe, into a position in which the humbler and more retiring believer, who has not half the grace nor half the courage that you have, may nevertheless become important to your mission. And when he does this, he would have you learn a lesson and learn it well, that the Lord has a place for all of his servants, and that he would not have us despise the least of them, but value them and cherish the good that he has in them. The head must not say to the foot, I have no need for thee. 
Those members of the mystical body which are weakest are yet necessary to the whole fabric. And so when we look at these two, be careful not to look at Obadiah as this weakling because we can add it to our own life that, oh, we want to be Elijah, we want to be Elijah. Well, you might have to be an Obadiah. That might be what God called you to be. Or you might be an Elijah for these five years and then God brings you into a new season of your life and you might have to be the Obadiah for someone else's Elijah. So make sure that when we look at this story, we don't overlook God's role for Obadiah. Back to the text, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, It is you, you troubler of Israel. Which is funny because Ahab still hasn't learned his lesson after these three years in severe famine that he is the reason for the trouble in Israel. But continuing in, in verse 18. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel. This is speaking of Elijah. I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me in Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So this is very clearly God's plan. This is not Elijah acting on his own. He didn't come up with this scheme to bring everyone into this quote-unquote arena on Mount Carmel to view what's about to happen. He's acting on God's will. Verse 20, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to them, to all the people, and said, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now, speaking in our modern day application, this might be the most critical portion of tonight's text. To put it bluntly, I think that right now, culturally, as Christians, we're at war. And I don't say that to try to put some flair for the dramatic or to, you know, be doom and gloom. But I just look at it as realistically as I can and look at the outside world and what's going on. And we are constantly under attack and the attack is increasing more and more on a daily basis. The fact of the matter is that we are in a battle for sound thinking and more importantly for sound doctrine. And I I think, you know, a decade ago, if I were to come to you and say, oh, I just put my, uh, you know, my child in preschool, they're in their two-year-old's class, it's great, they're learning wonderful things, Uh, This week's lesson, they're going to talk about genitalia. You would be like, what in the world is going on? But church, that is a reality today. (laughs) And the thing about these things is that 
it goes at like an exponential rate. It's like compound interest. Once the dam breaks, it goes and goes and goes. And so we have to arm ourselves. We have to look at this text and look at what Elijah is saying to these people of Israel, God's people, and realize that it's a lesson that we can learn ourselves. If we go back to that verse 20, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Church, there's no place for wavering in today's society. You have to make a stand. Now, I don't mean that in a way that you have to be confrontational. I don't mean that in a way that you have to go out seeking a fight. But I mean it in a way that eventually the fight is going to come to you. And it might come to you in a way that's very clearly obvious and, uh, you know, could be borderline scary physically. Or more likely, it's going to come in a way that might be subtle that gives you the option of, I'm just going to kind of skirt this or I'm going to make a stand. I can tell you an example recently that I had with a coworker, and we were having the discussion about something different, but uh, you know, maybe it was the Holy Spirit that opened the door that came on the topic of Christianity. And so then we got into this discussion, and uh, you know, he told me that he's a Christian. You know, he believes in that, um, but he also, you know, he doesn't knock anyone's religion. You know, there's several different ways. And then, that, then, you know, then the radar goes up on me when he says that. It's like, okay, now we're veering into a different discussion. And so I had to stand firm on the truth, and he got a little bit, um, I guess, aggravated would be the word, you know, and he's trying to say, oh, this and that. Oh, well, do you know the books? You know, that the, the Bible was written by men. Do you know the books that weren't included in the Bible? And he starts talking about, you know, there's, there's a book that's not in the Bible and the devil's walking around the earth. And God says, where have you been? And he said, oh, I've been walking the earth and all these people agree with you because you bless them. And I said, well, that's not in the books that aren't in the Bible. That's in the book that is in the Bible. That's in Job. So it's not in a, and I didn't say that in a way of arrogance, but that's why it's important that we know God's word. And that is the foundation of our theology is in God's Word so that we have that security in ourselves, but also so that we can stand up for our faith. And so, you know, the conclusion is of, of this story in particular with me and my coworkers, eventually he kept saying, you know, I don't knock anyone's religion. And I said, well, it seems like this conversation is wrapping up, so I just have to say it before we end it so that it's clear to you. I do knock other people's religions, just so you know. I don't believe in any other religion, and that's okay. There's one religion, there's one way. And it sounds like that you don't believe that, and so you're probably not a Christian. Once again, not in the anger, not in the arrogance, but you have to stand firm on your faith, church. It's very important because, once again, eventually the battle is going to be at your door. And so I, look, I think of myself as very 
very likely in my lifetime, I feel like that I will come under severe persecution, but I feel like it is almost a definite that in my children's lifetime and in my grandchildren's lifetime that they're going to come under severe persecution. And the, and the bad thing for them is that they're growing up in a generation that is by and large being indoctrinated from a very basic level. So it's important upon us that we've learned these things, we study the Bible and we pass that on. And not only that we pass on the lessons from the Bible, but that we pass on sound Bible study, Bible habits, getting people involved in the Bible, and that we lead by example in doing that because the best form of teaching is in us doing it and, us, and, and people seeing that. Okay, so back to our text. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I even, only I, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, just a second here. This shows a little bit of Elijah's pride. You know, and I think that it's important that we point that out. Because, like I said, let's not glorify or exalt Elijah. We can take uh, parts of the story and we can call him a hero and we can look at that and I think that's great. But also we need to recognize the human in Elijah. Elijah knows very well that he's not the only prophet. Obadiah just told him how he took a hundred prophets and, ha- and hid them in a cave. But he's taken on, oh, look, I'm the 450 of you, and I'm the only one. A little bit of his pride coming out there. Verse 23, let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull, meaning the prophets of Baal, for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. But put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. So Elijah's saying here, we're going to get two bulls. You pick whichever one you want, whatever one you think is most flammable. You can have. I'll take the other one, and we're going to see whose God is going to answer. Verse 24, And call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, which is smart, because if he would have gone first and God burnt up the altar, then it wouldn't have given them the opportunity to do so. He says, all right, you go first. Uh, Find my place. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name one ant and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awoken. So Elijah's having a little fun at their expense at this point. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time 
of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me, and all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down, and Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar with a great as great as would contain two seahs of seeds. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and filled the trenches with all the water. Now I want to stop here and unpack that a little bit. He has the 12 stones for the 12 sons of Jacob. He places them in the right way. He digs himself a trench. He tells them to go get the jars. They pour it and they fill it with water. And so this is to bring more glory to God when this fire comes down. But I want to, for a second, look at the contrast between him and the prophets. The prophets are wailing, crying out, cutting themselves, falling on the ground, apparently knocked down the idol or the uh, altar and all the things that they were doing. Elijah is very thoughtful and has a purpose in what he's doing. Now, I point that out to say that these are attributes that we can also attribute to our God. God is not reckless in what he's doing. God is not, oh, maybe I'll come up with something today. It's thoughtful. There's a purpose. He has a will. He has a will from the beginning of time, before time started. He has a purpose for how things are going to play out. And so when we look at our own lives, whether it be in our prayer or in our worship, it's not about what's most boisterous or what's the biggest exaggerated, extravagant way that I can do something. It's about the heart of the matter and the way that you're doing it. That's not to say that things can't be done in such a way that it brings glory to God. But if you're not putting your heart in the right place and doing it and making it about God, then the glory isn't to God. The glory is to yourself. And it kind of robs that righteousness out of it. So God clearly wanted to leave no doubt in the pouring on the water of this altar. Verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the abolition, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. He's pointing out that this is at God's will. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. That's a pretty cool picture of how specific it gets. It's not like it was like, like a little candle came up or something or like when you put lighter fluid on and you light it and a fire came down and consumed everything, including all the water enough to consume the dust that was around it. Like I said, to leave no doubt. Verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kashan and slaughtered them there. So this might seem a little harsh, but this going into this, everyone knows this, this was a zero-sum game. Elijah came there, and he came there by God's direction, and it's clear that he had all the faith, an enduring faith that had been brought to him through God's experiences that he had given on, to him through his life. So he has this faith. He knows what's going to happen. But he also knows that in presenting himself, they're going to want to kill him. And so now that this has happened, the flip side of that coin is they're going to want to kill the other prophets. And so that's what's playing out here. Verse 41, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink. For there is a sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to the servant, Go up now, look to the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. Now I picture this picture, and I could see it as, you know, sometimes here in Vero, when you go over the bridges, and you kind of get at that vantage point, and you can either look out on the ocean or sometimes look to the south or look to the north, and you see the storm, and that's kind of a typical of Florida. It would be beautiful sunshine, right? But you can see what's coming. And at this point, what's coming is just this little hand of a cloud rising, right? But Elijah knows what God's plan is. He knows that this little hand is eventually going to become rushing water, and it could be able to stop. Ahab's chariot from being able to leave. So he says, go ahead and let Ahab know you better get out of here. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, that's the end of our text, but I just want to point out real quick, this in itself is a little bit of a miracle, right? And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab 
to the entrance of Jezreel. The entrance of Jezreel is 14 miles away from where he was at Mount Carmel. Okay? And so it wasn't like Elijah went and got his Nike dry fit and his running shoes and said, all right, let's go and make it happen. Even that being said, that would have been quite the feat. But he literally gathered up his garments, his robes, and whatever type of sandals that he had, and he ran 14 miles and beat a man on a chariot with a horse. <laughs> so let's not overlook that. Once again, God is in control of this situation. This is a miracle. And so coming to the end of the text, I just want to reiterate the point that, you know, is, is valuable and it's something that we should look to to have a fervent prayer life. I, never would I ever want to uh, discredit the value in prayer in us taking that time to pray. And really, I feel like part of it, you know, some people have that gifting of prayer. And some people it comes more naturally. And unfortunately, it kind of is like this pendulum of some people might lean more towards uh, Bible study and some people might lean more towards prayer. But really, the balance is what we want to shoot for. And so we want to have that fervent prayer life. And I can even say for myself, there's times when I struggle at that. And sometimes I have to make it almost like, not legalistic, I would say, but I have to set aside that time. I have to make it like a habit of sorts so that I do it. And so I have to come up with these ways. You know, one thing I learned one time is that you make a list and you pray that list. And so you can kind of add to the list as it goes and cross off the list, which is a great reminder. Some people might have like a prayer journal, which is great, but it's good to have those reminders. And, you know, if you have it like I've had on my phone at times, when you tell someone, oh, I'm going to pray for you, or you think I'm going to pray for you, you put it in your phone, so then you're actually putting action to your words, that you are actually going to pray for that person. So that's a great way that you can do that. Like I said, setting aside that time. Also, if you struggle with it, I, don't, I wouldn't suggest uh, multitasking, because that's not really what we're calling for, but it might help you to get out in an area where your mind can relax, whether it might be like a, a morning walk. You know, Jesus oftentimes got away in the morning to be alone. So it might help for you to get out of your normal routine to be in a place where you can concentrate on prayer. But prayer is extremely important, church. We don't want to discredit prayer. That being said, we also don't want to make prayer something that it's not. Prayer is not uh, a vending machine for God. And it's also not, oh, you got to do it in this special formula way. And if you don't do it in that special formula way, that's why all these bad things are happening to you. That is not the truth. And like I said, Elijah didn't have some type of superpower to make all these things happen. Elijah's plan or God's plan for Elijah's life was no less important than God's plan for Obadiah's life. It's all part of the plan. Like the Bible speaks, you know, some of us are the ear, some of us are the hand, some of us are the feet, but we are all in the body of Christ and we are all 
part of this important plan. So never discredit looking at someone else's life and what's going on in their life and think, oh, well, they must not be praying enough or, oh, I'm better because I'm this wonderful prayer. That's not what we're talking about. And ultimately, at the foundation of all of this in a fervent prayer life is an enduring faith that you have lived, but also that you have learned through God's Word. They kind of go hand in hand. I do believe wholeheartedly that you can come to know Christ and that you can stay at a very basic level in God's Word and that you will go to heaven. However, I don't believe that that's what God's purpose is for you. He gave us this Word so that we would read it and so that we would learn. And so when we read the Bible and we see these things like Moses parting the Red Sea, Elijah having fire come down and burn up the altar. You know, we see things in Genesis like uh, animals speaking and things like that, giants, the flood. We see these great things and it's easy for us to want to have these grandiose plans in our life and oh you know God's gonna make me super successful so then I can have all this money so that I can have this great ministry and it's gonna be this wonderful thing and what we're leaving out is that all of this is our plan it's a self-centered self-indulgent thing and we just kind of put this little asterisk on the end of oh it's for God but really it's just to exalt ourselves. We don't need, not to say that God can't do any of those things that he did in the Bible. I would never say that. But I would say that unlike the people that were in the Bible who experienced these actual historical events, they didn't have the complete God's word, God's message to his people. So sometimes they needed these things. But we have it. So if we take this word and we study it, we will learn these lessons and that will give us this enduring faith to be, able, to be able to withstand the things, the trials that are being brought upon us and the things that we're going to have to endure, the persecution that's coming in this world. And so that's what I want to leave with you tonight. So let's pray as we close. Father, I just thank you for this time. I thank you um, for this church body, um, for the willingness of, the people of the church, Lord, that want to come and learn and know you better, Lord. And that is really the purpose for any of us being here is that we want to grow. I thank you for uh, the people that you've put in this church, Lord, the specific makeup that you give in this church and the attributes that you have given the people that really the fingerprints that, that you have given them are all over this church, Lord, the, the fellowship, the uh, the providing for one another, people that are looking to serve you, Lord, but also serve others. It's a wonderful body to be a part of. It's encouraging to be able to raise a family in that, Lord, and really it's a blessing on my life, and I know that it blesses others in the body. I pray that as we leave tonight that you would protect all of us, that you would uh, keep these words with us, Lord, your words, and that we would think on them, Lord, and that we would uh, hopefully have the ability to uh, spread them to others. We pray all these things in your name, amen.